You're listening to Pod Wars with Gary and Justice. Hey guys, this is Gary, and welcome to another episode of Pod Wars. On Pod Wars, we'd like to dissect Star Wars, Marvel, and our favorite little nuggets of geeky media. I'm here today with our good friend, your good friend, my good friend, Justice. What's up, guys? And you know, we did that intro. You know what that means. We got an awesome interview coming ahead. I, I'm psyched for you guys to listen to this one. It was super interesting to both of us as two dudes who know nothing about makeup effects hearing this. Like, I learned so much from this interview. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I As she was, like, just telling these stories, I'm just blown away by the amount of collaboration and work that she had to do just to make the, like these aesthetics and these effects go in that we all love. It, it gives you a real behind-the-scenes look at what happened with some of your favorite Marvel productions with the Marvel Netflix series. But, Justice, I think it's time for us to tease some of the dopeness we have ahead of us. Right. So I feel kind of bad because every single time we get on this podcast, I'm like, oh, we have things coming up. We have things coming up. But I, I don't want to say anything because nothing's set in stone. So we're about to blow the doors off with everything that's coming off because this month is a huge month for Pod Wars. Gary, hit him with the first one. So first up, we're going to be collabing with Comic Book Couples Counseling, and we're really excited with them. I think we might have teased them back, but they also, congrats to those guys. You got recently put on a BuzzFeed list of top podcasts for book lovers, so congrats to you both for that. But we're excited to have you on Pod Wars, and we're thinking of discussing the relationship qualms for Padme and Anakin. And then... On October 24th, we have Jason Sorrell coming on our podcast. And this guy was an ex-imagineer. Now he is the NBC Universal like senior creative director. Uh, kind of like runs the parks, um, comes up with the creative side for that. And he's coming on our podcast, which like when he said yes, that that blew my mind. That's just awesome. I'm so psyched to talk to him about like the different rides in Disney. I've never gone to Disney, and now I feel like I'm going to leave that interview just more hyped to go to Disneyland, Disney World, and all of that. You've never been to Disneyland or World? No, it's... We were... Yeah, it, it's going to happen. It's going to happen, dude. I just didn't have oh, yeah. a childhood. All right, and then in November... Uh, this I know this is kind of far out, but uh, we're starting our Lord of the Rings section of uh the shows and we're gonna collab with the prancing pony you guys should go check them out if you love lord of the rings they have some really great content and so we're super excited uh yeah i mean we're and we thank you guys for checking out you know mark austin and josh lang's podcast you know thank you so much for showing us all this love uh and we just hope that you love this upcoming interview <laughs> Hey guys, we're really excited to have on the show Sarit Klein. Sarit, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm super excited to share my journey a bit about Marvel, maybe to give some tips and behind the scenes. Yeah, and to give you guys a little teaser and we'll dive into this more, Sarit's worked on a lot of different things within media in general and some of the geeky media we love. She's worked on The Green Book, I Am Legend, as well as the Netflix Marvel series, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Defenders. And we're really excited to get her input on how kind of makeup effects come into media and that relationship with her art. But 
to start you out here, we have to ask, since you did work a bunch with Marvel, do you have a favorite Marvel movie? Um, it, it is probably, I mean, I like all the Marvel movies, but I think my favorite is probably Guardians of the Galaxy, the original one, number one. Um, just because it just constantly made me laugh and I like looking at the makeup, obviously, and it gets my creative juices flowing with Gamora and Max. And I know some of it is CGI, but it just still gives you some idea of, you know, makeup design, which is I'm all about. So that would be Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, that one's just a fun one in general with the jokiness, but I didn't even think of that. Looking at it from your view, you see like Drax, full body makeup. You have to kind of have that behind the scenes idea of, okay, how did they actually do this? Exactly. They actually posted it on Instagram at some point. So I was stalking it a little bit. <laughs> well, even Gamora with all the green makeup and stuff, that's got to be a lot like to put on, on and off continuously. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, those actors are, are marvels. They just sit in the chair for so many hours. And, you know, as makeup artists, it's so much fun to do. But there's so much that goes into something like that that uh, the audience just doesn't know about. Yeah, absolutely. But to kind of start us out here, can you kind of tell us the process of how you broke into makeup effects and movie industry? Because you originally started with a business degree, correct? Yeah, my my journey, my path is definitely unconventional. Um, I was born in Israel. I grew up in Israel to uh, an American mom, an Israeli dad. So I, I lived in an American home. And the 80s was my thing. I was a teenager. So I, you know, watched a lot of different um, also superhero shows. You know, the um, Invisible Man, they were, I remember Saturday mornings, they had a lot of... Um, Aquaman and all these things. And so I always live in like this fantasy world and I spoke English. So I understood that, but, and I played with makeup. I played with, I painted a lot. I did makeup on myself as a young girl and my mom. And I actually took a makeup course just for fun. I was in the army for two years and I took a makeup course um, for about eight months just to know how to do makeup and theater and weddings and special effects. And I never actually thought that I would create a career from that. I knew that that existed, but I, I'm both left brain and right brain, which I guess is why I'm a makeup department and designer because those two work really well for me. Um, but I wanted to get a business degree. Um, I got an international business and economics. And then through, you know, freak accidents and like word of mouth, I started working in a TV station, um, which is now the, the, I guess the third biggest in Israel. And I was in the development side. And I went to set one day and I saw makeup artists and I saw what they were doing and they were actually doing bruises and cuts. And I just continued watching them. And I fell in love with that. And I said, this is what I want to do. And I was 28 at the time. And I said, I want to do it in New York. Um, I knew nobody in New York. I had one cousin, but I knew nobody in the entertainment industry. So I talked to a lot of people. I talked to my family and I just realized that that's my dream and I want to do that. So I left everything. I was almost 29. I got to New York and I just started from scratch. So my transition was just really weird. I had other um, careers in the, in, in the, you know, I was a flight attendant for a few years. I was a web designer, but every one of those careers, I realized what I don't want. and you know, web design is great and creative, but I was in front of the computer all day long and I'm a people person. 
So I didn't want to do that. So coming to New York, um, starting from scratch, it was not easy, but I really was passionate about doing this. Um, so I just started cold calling photographers. I went to uh, camera shops in New York and took numbers and tested with people and um, Mandy.com. I just started working for free. That's kind of how I got started. Can you kind of dive into what you, you mentioned a, a cool statement there of how the makeup effects engage both your left brain and right brain. How does it kind of get into both that logical and artistic mindset? Um, are we talking about makeup effects specifically? Or as a designer? I guess kind of just that realm in general. As people who are unfamiliar with the realm, how does it kind of engage both of those mindsets? Well, right right brain is the creative aspect, which would be for me, um, part of it is designing. Although I think design is both left brain and right brain. And obviously applying makeup and um, looking at colors and understanding colors and choosing colors and designing characters. And left brain for me as a, a makeup designer and department head, there's a lot of prep that goes into a TV show, into a movie, into creating a character. Obviously, it's a design, but you're researching a lot. And sometimes I use a lot of Excel spreadsheets just to get budgets for the show or inventory or manpower or continuity. So knowing to utilize both and obviously having a great team that you can delegate, that makes my life much, much easier. But I think being makeup department head is definitely a skill. You can be a wonderful makeup artist, but not know how to manage a team and to collaborate with, you know, the above the lines, the producers, the actors, the the director. Um, You definitely need, like I said, it's a skill. You definitely need to have both left brain and right brain. And honestly, I think as a makeup department head, it's sometimes 50-50. You don't have to be the best makeup artist, but to design, you need to obviously know the color wheel and have, you know, open dialogue and, and ideas and collaboration. So I, I guess, um, what is the role of the makeup artist when it comes to, you know, actors, directors? Like you were talking about, like, having this, um, being like the head of it, like, what, what does that, like, day-to-day kind of look like? Um. Day-to-day kind of depends on the project, but I can give you ideas from one of the Marvel shows that I worked on. For instance, um, out of the five Marvel on Netflix shows that I did, Defenders was by far the largest one because we had all the other shows, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist were just those characters and their story and you know their journey and their flaws. And here we go to Defenders um, you know, which is kind of like the Avengers movies, you have everybody there together. So in the Defenders, we had all of these, plus their stunts, plus the other characters from each individual show coming together. So a typical day on that show is by far so much, you know, I would say harder, but it's the planning that just makes it um, run smoothly. For instance, there's a day that I remember that we had all the cast and we had all the stunts and there were almost 50 people that we needed to get ready in three hours. So a day like that, I prepped two days in advance because that had to do, you had to be facial hair and blood and cuts and it was continuity. So we had to match things and we had to do this two days in a row. So we set it up like factory style. We had... um, an area like a pod that was just making people dirty. 
Then we had an area that was applying facial hair and an area that was just blood, which would be the last thing and usually unset. But if somebody needed blood on a cut or a bruise, we did it there. And then we had, then we had the actual actors coming into our chairs. So a day would start usually in pre-calls and whether it's, you know, a day shoot or a night shoot, we would come in anywhere between an hour to three and a half hours before call. So if crew calls 7 a.m. on a Monday, my typical day would be 4.30 or 5 a.m. to get to work. And um, to make it easy, like I said, you plan in advance so that when we go on the day, everybody has all the information. I'm a very good communicator, which makes my job easy and I'm production friendly so that everything will just, you know, getting 50 people ready in three hours is a lot of work, especially when it comes to effects and matching. So once you get to, um, to the trailer, I go over the day with my team. My team on the Defenders, we were five girls full time. And then we had an extra help, extra help for those two crazy big days. There were more crazy big days, but I'm just talking about this specific one on stage. Um, and go over the flow of the day because sometimes actors will need changes during the day. So I delegate who does what. Um, We usually do that in advance, but things change. This is a film or TV set. You have to know and be able to adapt to last minute changes, whether it's makeup, whether it's special effects, whether it's, oh, the actor is late now. You have to do him in 20 minutes less, but then it's going to fall into the time that my other actor is coming in. So it's all about shifting and being okay with it and understanding and not to have expectations that it's just going to be as is. I hope I answered that question. I was digressing a little bit. <laughs> no, it was great. You were, you know, just really showing us like what, what that world looks like. I'm, uh, I have to say, I'm not very familiar with, you know, that whole makeup side of everything, but I, I do think the effects are awesome, especially on that show. Uh, is there one show that you particularly like working on the most when it came to those Marvel TV shows? I, I'm not sure I have a a favorite. Maybe I do, but I may not say it, but I will say that defenders, I like the defenders because I got to see all my friends, all my friends from all my other shows. And I love challenges and that show was definitely a challenge. And also we were shooting three years in a row, which means I started shooting in June 2014. We finished Defenders in 2017 with no break in between each show. And I was prepping Jessica Jones while I was shooting Daredevil, prepping Luke Cage when I was shooting Jessica Jones. So it was a big, big task. And I knew that when I got into it, it's going to be a three-year process, but I was looking forward to it. And then coming to the Defenders when you know, you're waiting on the scripts to see what's going to happen. Who is somebody going to die? What's going to, you know? Um, so I think probably out of all of those, it would be the defenders because also Sigourney Weaver was there and I got to do her makeup and, you know, she's a lovely, lovely person. Um, so I would say the defenders, now that I'm talking about it, it's the defenders. Yeah. Which I imagine had to be extra special because you have all of the main actors from the Netflix series into that one production. So it probably made it a lot more for you to delegate and figure out with that component. Yeah, it was, it was definitely the biggest team that we had on all the Marvel shows, but um, 
we just got to see everybody and it was harder. Like I said, it was more of a challenge. We must've been more tired because we worked three years straight with maybe a week off in between. I got married on Daredevil, which was October, 2014. And I took my honeymoon on Iron Fist, which was two years later. That is how much oh my time gosh. I had in between. <laughs> and I, remember I hope getting you had a hell of a honeymoon then. Well, we went to St. Lucian. I remember I was on the beach and I got a text message, a call, something about Iron Fist. And I literally laughed and I said, I am not answering this on my honeymoon. Wait three more days till I get back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Do you have any funny stories or anecdotes of uh, adding makeup to some of those characters or uh, actors from the show? Funny anecdotes. I'm sure I have a bunch. Uh, do you guys remember Madame Gao? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Madame Gao, Madame Gao, uh, she was in Daredevil, Iron Fist, and The Defenders. And to this day, we don't know if she survived or not. And um, she was a really lovely design that was actually non-prosthetic. And um, just in general through the Marvel shows, because it was so much effects, I had a prosthetic team was uh, led by Josh Torrey, Designs to the Scene. And him and I worked together all the time, you know, figuring things out. And um, he was in charge of the application, obviously, and designing some things like the uh, Iron Fist tattoo. It was just so much going on. So there was no way I would be able to handle that side as well. So Josh and I worked together before that. And then when I brought him on the Marvel shows, he continued actually after I left as well. And um, forgot the question. Oh, the, the makeup stuff. Yeah, so Madame Gao, Madame Gao um, was in the chair. She started out two hours. And every part of the skin that you see, whether it's her face, her ears, her neck, her hands, it's all latex, all special effects. And it was a two-person job. And she was in it a bunch, mainly an iron fist. So um, it was two people. It was stretch and stipple technique. And one person had to stretch while I had to stipple and create the wrinkles. And I remember the test for that in the beginning, beginning of the show. This was also before Daredevil when this was establishing first Marvel show on Netflix. So everyone was a little bit, you know, not sure how the process is going to be. So there were tests all the time on every single cut and bruise and character and scene just because of the approval process for the, you know, cinematic universe. And uh, for Madame Gao, I did a first test. And Madame Gao, uh, we don't know how old she is. We know that she could be hundreds. She could be a century. We don't know how old she is. So it was, from a design process, it was do whatever you want. But you know, let her look very old. And after the first test, I brought her to set to show. And they look at her, she's like, she's great, but let's look older. Go back. We put another layer and another layer all over and hand painting shadows and highlights. And I think we did three tests and um, we ended up, until they approved it, we ended up doing a two-hour process. And then we called ourselves the Gao Gao Girls instead of the Go Go Girls. Because every time um, came to the trailer, we had so much fun with her. We just put on music and we knew we were kind of timing ourselves to see how fast we can do it every single time. And the fastest we did, I think, was 50 minutes by the zero, which is pretty great, you know, knowing that every single area has to be, you know, covered. And of course, she had the wig and, you know, it's a process. So 
that's a fun process. And also another funny story, I think is the blood, choosing the blood in the beginning of Daredevil because every show had its own filters and color scheme. Daredevil is more red and blood is red. And we were shooting so many night shoots. And I mean, so many, I mean, probably 75%. Um, Friday nights, we always started at 6, 7, 8 p.m. So I wouldn't usually have a Saturday. But a funny story was when we, for the first time, we did tests on blood just to see what blood color would actually show up on camera in the dark. And we uh, went through multiple tests to get the blood that we wanted. And another funny story was um, Vanessa... Um, she had, well, I did a lot of tests on myself as well sometimes because we had so many people covering on set with the tests I had to do in my spare time, which I didn't really have. So I just went to the trailer and she had to foam in the mouth. So I remember, <laughs> this is funny. I remember putting Alka-Seltzer with some color in my mouth various times, videoing it with one hand and sending it to, um, Steve Denight and the executive producers, me foaming in my mouth just so they can see the consistencies, the colors. And I was like, <laughs> that that's funny. And I remember doing that probably at 2 a.m. on a night shoot. But again, it's just all of these things that you need to do. There were so many tattoos on Daredevil that um, 3, 4 a.m., um, me and my key, Jill, were just sitting and cutting hundreds of tattoos so that small, large, different, because everybody had, you know, Russians have tattoos on their hands. So we had to make sure that not one has the same as the other and to get it approved and pictures and tests. So yeah, that, that was a fun time. Sometimes I miss it. How do you add on the tattoos for people? How do you add it? Yeah. Very <laughs> well, there's adding tattoos and there's covering tattoos. And can you imagine adding a tattoo on top of a, an existing tattoo that we need to cover? Hmm. That's that's also yeah. So the tattoos. I mean, adding a tattoo is actually not too hard. You know, it's water based. You put you clean the skin. Obviously, this is no moisturizer, so that it will just stick better and not peel. And it's a little trickier, obviously, when you're doing it on top of a cover tattoo. But for a regular tattoo, you'll put it on the skin. You'll put a puff or a, a cloth or a paper towel soaked in water and you you kind of make it damp and you hold it for at least 10 seconds. And you can peek a little bit and just see um, if it's peeling or not. And then obviously you should not forget to peel the uh, plastic wrap in the beginning, which happened to me a couple of times when you're tired at night and then the tattoo comes up on your puff. <laughs> so... So yeah, after you do that, um, it's a little shiny. So you spray it, you powder it lightly, and then you spray it with a sealer. And sometimes you need to age it because sometimes these tattoos just look like they're brand new, which we don't want to do unless you're doing a Halloween character, right? But there are um, these tattoo pens that are called 75% age, 100% age, 50% age is also black and a blue. So depending on the color of the tattoo, you choose the right pen, sometimes even more, and you just kind of um, alter the color a tad just to make it look like it's you know has been worn for a while. So, so the actor for Danny Rand was he getting that ta chest tattoo put on every single day, or like did you guys like you could use it multiple times, or how? You work? can't use a tattoo multiple times. Um, 
we didn't put the tattoo on Danny every day. We did put it we did put it on when we knew that his his chest is going to be exposed or we had to collaborate with wardrobe in advance to know how far down are the buttons in his shirt because if we had to show a scar or a cut or something from the previous episode which is another topic by the way continuity of the cuts and the scars and the bruises for superheroes that could be another question. But um, we had to find uh, in advance, hopefully the day before, so we can figure out time to put the tattoo. Um, we had to find out what he's wearing so that we know, do we just put part of the tattoo? Because, you know, it's, it's hit the ground running when you're doing TV shows. This is not a film. You want them in and out as fast as possible. There's a lot to shoot. You need to get through. You know, this is a deadline for... Marvel to put the show on Netflix or Netflix to, to create that deadline. So we were constantly just moving as fast as possible. So um, knowing information in advance was pretty crucial to making a day. That's what it's called in TV. Making your day means um, if you're, if you're allocating on your call sheet, you have 12 pages and five scenes, making your day means you got all of them. Not making your day means you didn't get all of them. That sometimes happens. Then you have to shift the schedule to figure that out, which sometimes um, shifts continuity. And then you have to figure things out and it kind of snowballs. So back to the tattoo, um, I think there were 20 something tests on that Danny Rand tattoo. It was the color, the size, the shape, the placement. Uh, am I forgetting something? No, I think those were the four um, situations that we had to work around. Um, and Josh did an amazing job. But I remember him and I were texting all the time. We're like, okay, are we going to make a bet? Are we going to have another test or not? Um, but I get it. You know, I knew that this is the approval process. So, yeah, so we did not need to put that tattoo on every day. Just every time his chest was shown. And even if it was shown a little bit, we had to, you know, cut the tattoo and just put that part some of you did put the whole tattoo because you never know if, you know, in the chair, we know that he's only going to show two buttons, but he gets to sit and the director suddenly says, oh, I actually want him fully, you know, I want to see his chest. And they were like, well, we didn't put the whole tattoo on. So that doesn't work. When it, when it comes to the continuity, do you have someone that is with you where they're just um, making sure that like, okay, like in this next scene, they should have this cut or this bruise and like that's their specific job is just like following that around, making sure it all fits. Um, yes and no. Basically, um, the key or the third, it depends on the job and, and the choice of the department head is in charge of continuity. And um, my last show, we actually did something called Sync on Set, where all departments um, could log in and see continuity from different character, different day, different episode and scenes. But before that, on the Marvel shows, we uh, printed everything. We had books and we had books on books on books and they were in the Marvel vault. And when I got to the Defenders, I had to ask for permission to access that vault to get the continuity books from every single um, show that I did. And also, actually, while we were shooting Luke Cage, we started shooting Daredevil 2. So that continuity was interesting because I had to communicate with the other makeup teams from the other shows because I established the season ones and with the timeline I had to give them information about 
um, daredevil scars for interest, for instance. So we had a map that showed the scars and that map was ever evolving that when he got another, you know, cut or scar, we had to add that to the map and discuss in meetings prior to an episode when we know he's going to get a specific cut or scar. It was a discussion with the powers of B to figure out, um, is that scar going to last on Daredevil's body? Or is it, you know, more of a shallow cut that isn't going to last? We don't need to add that to the map. But back to that, I had to give that map and other information for other characters to the other shows that were shooting at the time that I was shooting Defenders or something else. So on a show specifically, we do have somebody in charge of continuity, but if they're busy with their actor and I'm in charge of Daredevil and I'm doing the cuts, I'm going to take pictures and then I'm going to send it to that person. When that person has time, they're in the trailer. You're going to print out all the pictures. Um, We label everything because we go back to the continuity books so often, especially with these superheroes and their, you know, healing powers. You would think that if somebody has a bruise, it would last for maybe three weeks. But Daredevil's bruise lasted for four days, for instance, or the cut disappears after three days, you know, Marvel TV magic. (laughs) Yeah. So there was just a lot of discussion about that. And back to what I spoke in the beginning, there was a lot of tests as well, because especially on Daredevil, it was the first show that Marvel did on Netflix. And they wanted to make sure that it is a specific aesthetic and it, you know, fits into the cinematic universe, but it has its own look and feel. So continuity is a major, major thing that we have to be on top of every single day and night. Yeah, I remember when that when that show came out, I just got people hooked on the show by just showing them that opening scene where like it's just like the the credits scrolling and then just as the fight scenes like they were so visceral, they were so like the the blood was so great. It like it really got people hooked and and made this really gritty, awesome, you know, universe for Marvel. So you did a fantastic job in your team. Oh, thank you. That I mean that was the plan to, to you know, all these characters are more grounded they're they're real people that happen to have superhero powers and and have flaws and how they're dealing with their life and helping you know new york city and save the planet so you know you don't really see anybody with high heels and tons and tons of makeup running around saving the city it was more that feel and um that's the way we shot it too obviously the lighting is a major thing that i had to work with um and the filters and that was like the pre-production meeting before a show started was discussing what filters are going to be on a specific show. So for instance, you know, Jessica Jones was more the purple, blue, the noir. Luke Cage was more the golds. And that was a big thing for makeup. We had to see which colors would pop, knowing that it's not going to look the same. And then getting to the Defenders too, that was interesting because knowing that each person's show looked differently. How do we combine all that together in one show? So there's a lot of meanings about that as well. One thing I did appreciate with a lot of the Netflix series is, I mean, my wife jokes about it a lot when we watch something of, you see those um, women actresses dressed in heels, perfect hair in the middle of a disaster scene. I love how the Netflix series kind of just like, no, we're going to make it look like they're in a disaster scene. 
it always makes me laugh. I mean, part of the things that um, when I was interviewed by Melissa Rosenberg, the showrunner for Jessica Jones, while I was shooting Daredevil, um, she came to set one night to meet us. And she said, you know, who they were thinking of casting. And obviously, we want her to look like she doesn't have any makeup. Her character does not care. She drinks a lot. She doesn't give up, you know, and my uh i just had to show pictures of my portfolio which i'm very good at natural makeup as well as creating characters one thing i love so i showed her all these things and she loved the inspiration and one of the pictures i actually had was of kristen ritter and um i did not know that they were going to cast kristen as jessica jones but that those were conversations that i had with starting with the showrunner just talking about the looks because nobody is wearing high heels and running around there. I mean, you know, I didn't want the makeup to take away from the story. It was to enhance the character. And in general, makeup tells a story and it helps tell the arc of the character, especially since you guys are talking about the cuts and the bruises and the blood. That's a major thing, especially on these Marvel shows. So I think if Jessica Jones suddenly had these red lips and these huge lashes and black liner there doesn't even fit what she's going through and what the whole you know situation that she's in it just doesn't make sense so obviously there's a collaboration with the actress as well and on all the actors in the beginning when we establish their looks there's makeup tests as well for that and um it's a very interesting process i truly enjoyed it just collaborating with everybody did you ever go back to comics or other source material to kind of look to see like what these actors could be in on the show versus like what they were portrayed as in these old stories? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's part of the inspiration. We, we lean towards the comics, but we want to make it our own and we might want to make it um, more like real people. So, you know, when I start my designs as a department head, you do a lot of research. You look at the comic books for the Marvel shows. You look at Pinterest or um, different um, genres like the noir for Jessica Jones and just like color schemes, you know, you create kind of a mood board. And I constantly go back to that when I was looking at Jessica Jones. It doesn't look like Jessica Jones has makeup on or a lot, but she actually had a full face on. And I think that the fact that people think that she doesn't, it makes me so happy because then I did my job and I did my job right because that's part of who she is rather than I do get requests though. What, what lipstick or what, what does she wear? Which is great. And I love, you know, sharing information behind the scenes, but comic books is definitely a part of it. It's not a hundred percent because again, this is a specific look for our shows. Now I, with all these stories you hear about the makeup effects and special effects, I just always try to think, what would it be like being in that chair as the actor for, like you said, like 15 minutes to an hour, having to stay perfectly still while somebody's pulling your skin, putting layers on. How do you guys manage that mental fortitude and kind of help the actor or actress through that situation? Yeah, well, knowing that the process, obviously, okay, so once you start a show like that, you become a family. And your friends, you see each other probably more than you see your significant others at home. You're working together for 12 to 15 days, five days a week, and sometimes six. So you become a family, you already know what music this and this likes. And um, 
if I know that a certain actor, actress needs to be in the chair longer than others, or in general, you need to read the room. If an actor comes knowing that an actor has a crime scene, I'm going to leave that actor be. I'm not going to engage. I'm going to, they sometimes come with headphones and with their script. And I just do my thing, put soft music on, or sometimes even ask for no music. That's okay. Um, we kind of know in the trailer the vibe when the actor comes in. We won't talk as much if we see the actor with headphones and reading the script to let them get into their zone. So that's pretty much how we manage it. I think the key is to know how to read the room, um, especially for the lead actors that are there every day. They are so in the zone and it is hard, hard hours. They're also doing stunts and they are working seven days a week, even if they're not shooting. They're always getting into shape. They're always reading lines and all kinds of meetings. And we want to make it as comfortable as possible because we are the last thing that they see before they go to set. And we want them to be in the good mood or in a bad mood if it calls for that scene or in their zone and not to bother them. All right. So taking a little step back, um, I'm just curious, what, what, what's the biggest difference between people's like everyday makeup and like the special effects that you, you guys use? You mean everyday makeup on a TV show or in real life if someone does makeup for a red carpet? I'd say more because you have experience with red carpet. Is there a main difference in how you approach the red carpet versus the on-camera makeup? Yeah. Well, red carpet is always glam. You also, like in TV or film, you want the makeup to last. But when you do makeup for a red carpet... There's going to be flash, like there's going to be flashes, there's going to be um, a lot of lights, and that person may go on the red carpet four or five hours actually to lift your chair. So the key for red makeup, uh, to red carpet makeup, obviously, is um, making them look pretty, but also using products that are good for their skin and that will last. So sometimes it has to be more layering, but also in a way that you blend it in so it looks natural. And there's more lashes usually, obviously, because a lot of people like to pop their eyes or this is a specific look. And it's a collaboration as well with um, the person that you're getting ready. To say that there's more time for a carpet, sometimes there isn't. Sometimes I'll get a last minute call or... Sometimes um, the person's late and you scheduled an hour and a half in the chair and now you have 45 minutes, which includes getting dressed and putting body makeup on. So that kind of reminds me of TV because, um, you know, a person is supposed to sit in my chair at 5.12 or 5.30 and that person could be late for many various reasons. And they come in at six and I only have 15 minutes. So I do my best sometimes if you know, if it's special effects and you can't work hard, I know some shortcuts that I can maybe do it after rehearsal or things like that. Um, I think the main difference, well, I think there's research and prep for both more for TV because you're creating characters that will live in the Marvel universe or will live, you know, once it's out there, internet or TV, it's out there forever. When you're on a red carpet, obviously you do have pictures. Um, so I think, the design is different and red carpet is usually one and done and a TV show, it's more of a prep and conversations and more discussions and tests and a lot more makeup, a lot kit because you need to have options, a lot more characters. 
So it's a, it's a much bigger job, obviously, doing TV and film. More longevity. Do you prefer doing that, like, aesthetic makeup versus doing bloods and blood and cuts and bruises and whatnot? You know, I don't have a preference, actually. The last show that I um, did just before the pandemic and we shut down, actually, I did a vampire pilot. But just before that, I did uh, a glam show called Katie Keeney was on CW. And there were barely any effects. And that was the first real true glam show that I did. And um, that's a skill that I have, but I haven't done a big show like that. And it was like Sex and the City. There were four leads and a drag queen. So that was just a lot of work and a lot of makeup and a lot of figuring things out. And um, special effects as well as a lot of figuring things out. But I think... I gotta say, I like both of them. I think once I do a glam show, I would like to, to have a special effects show. And then once I do a special effects show, I'd like to do a, you know, more of a regular makeup show. I think kind of back and forth. I like creating characters. That's essentially what I like, telling stories. So I can do both in glam and um, in special effects. Going on kind of a different topic, you mentioned how you had that one case where you had to do all these layers of makeup to help with aging the actress. Do you have any case in mind that you think was like, this was a big project or the longest it took for applying makeup effects? Um, if we're talking about one specific character that took the longest, it would probably be either Madame Gao or I did a show called Dirty John that... Um, that was on AMC. I did Dirty John season one and Eric Bana. I don't know if you guys heard the podcast. It was uh, really popular a few years ago. It was a real story and they made it into a show. And um, me and Jason Collins, Autonomous Effects, we did one of, well, I mean, I won't ruin this in case you guys want to see what happens at the end. But if you Google Dirty John, you'll see what happened to Mr. Dirty John. Um, the Thing that I can say without a spoiler is that he was in the hospital with a specific injury and that took probably two and a half hours shaved head with the prosthetics that Jason did and things on his body and it was it was great um it's you know it's really rewarding to see something that comes from scratch with a test and then you actually see it on camera, especially if you are portraying a real person. So you have those pictures, you know, in your arsenal of that specific picture of him in the hospital. So it's just really interesting to do that. Um, yeah, so Madame Gal was there, two hours, two and a half hours. There were other shows, like I did, a, I, did um, I was assisting on a movie called I'm Legend back in OC. I think that was time flies. I don't even know during the pandemic, but I think it was about 15 years ago. That's a great, great, great movie. <laughs> Full time. I was on it for a bunch and I did the zombies and, and that was amazing. And then I found out later on that they uh, made CGI out of those zombies. So I'm not even sure what of my work was on camera, but um that was a lot. That was a lot of work. And that was one of my favorite things. And that was just when I was just got into the union. I was, I was doing makeup before that, but getting into the union, and that was one of my first jobs. That was kind of like the highlight of my career. 
we were a 40 makeup people, maybe more like background zombies, foreground zombies and prosthetics and everything. That was fun. It was great. Okay, we got to hear more about I Am Legend because that's one we were definitely curious about. So what kind of effects did you do for the zombies? What sort of ways did you kind of create that aesthetic? I mean, we're in that spooky season. I know. Well, I I was one of the people that were assisting. So I was hired by, um, I think it was Christian Tinsley who hired somebody local who hired a team of people And I was there for a few weeks. And what was interesting is that, you know, I honestly don't remember the whole process, but um, there were prosthetics. And I remember they created something that looked like cement that we had to put on the zombies and they all had to have shaved heads. They were actually paid to um, have their shaved heads for months because we had to actually shut down for a minute, actually more than a minute. It was for a few months, they had to shut down and come back. I'm not sure if it was because of the script or whatnot, but um, I bumped into somebody in the street after that and they said, um, oh yeah, I still have a shaved head because I am on hold for that. And then we came back and it was like, again, like a factory. That's the, that's the way it works in these big, big projects, especially with special effects. You want it to go smoothly. And we're talking about, I don't even remember how many zombies there were, but we had stations and each station had something else to do, whether it's putting the dirt in the nails and the toenails and the faces. It was somebody who did the body. There was somebody who did the face. It was just kind of like clockwork. And like I said, we were 40 something working there for two weeks. So it's kind of fun. A long time ago. Uh, since we're, you know, kind of talking about spooky things, what has been your experience with the, the horror genre? Um, I worked on a movie called Knock Knock so many years ago. Um, I didn't do the prosthetics on it. There was a prosthetic designer and department to do that. I think I do a little horror and mainly special effects. I don't know if you can call that horror. Um, I've obviously done zombies and prosthetics. And um, I have not done a full, full horror film, which is something that I would love to do and collaborate with like a special effects prosthetic designer. Is there like a, a horror series or gen- like a type of genre that you would love to do? Um, the pilot that we just did was a vampire pilot that unfortunately got canceled. And um, that was the um, showrunner of Riverdale. So that was a contemporary to different periods to the 1800s and to um, Cleopatra. And if that got picked up, maybe who knows it could in the future. And that would be something that would be amazing to be part of because we had to go through, um, you know, bangs. We had to go through, you know, contacts and um, blood and creating different looks for different periods and seeing the gore of somebody's neck cut and all these things. It's something that's fascinating. So after doing the glam show, I really wanted that to be picked up and to work on. <laughs> well, that's completely opposite ends of the spectrum with those two I shows. Know, it really is. But taking a step back to kind of the Marvel stuff, um, you have with these big productions, long shoots and this makeup effects need to last. I know there's one 
scene in particular I was thinking of of where like Luke Cage is underwater and I imagine that one was a difficult one prosthetic wise. Oh my god, that story. Thanks for bringing it up. That was something so interesting. So Luke Cage underwater, we actually shot that um, on my birthday. It was Columbus Day. And we had, wow, we had a lot going on that day, plus him being underwater. So we had facial hair, had prosthetic, and we had makeup, and we had a wig. And he needs to be underwater for eight hours. So we did plenty and plenty of tests to get that right. And you can only hope for the best because things could happen and he could eat a taco with salsa and everything can get all over your prosthetic. And you're like, um, you know, what do I do now? It's going to take time to remove it and apply a new one. But it worked out. We managed to work it out. And we had, it held hours and hours and hours. And I kid you not, the moment they said, cut, we got it. The prosthetic lifted. Ah, perfect timing. Oh my God, we're so lucky. Yeah, that was definitely, um, it took a long time because you obviously have the prosthetic and then you have to lay a beard on top of that, which is actually, I'll bring up another story to do with, you know, um, challenges that I had to overcome. On Iron Fist, when he first started, he had a really big beard, which he grew and grew before the show started, because we asked him to grow that. And then when he comes to the camera test, I can cut into it and figure out what they like, what they approve. We got to a certain look and we always get only just one or two scripts, but I knew the arc of the story. And I knew that in episode three, he needs to shave his beard to a shorter beard. So I spoke to the producer and I said, are we sure before I shave and cut down his beard to a specific look, that we do not need to do any reshoots or anything with the big beard. Because if we do that, I'm going to have to put a whole beard on top of an existing beard. And that's very hard to do because of the lace and to stick on hair rather than on skin. I was assured we're all good, good to go. Cut to three episodes in, I get the um, lovely email. I'm so sorry to let you know, but looks like we have to reshoot two days of the opening of Iron Fist. Uh-huh. Close up of his face with that beard. And I said, oh my goodness. He's like, can you do it? What do you need? I said, I need time. I need to custom make the beard to, to, to do tests on it. And more than one test because, and I need time on the day more than usual to apply the beard. So I got all of that. They gave me enough time Um, We did the beard, we got it, we did the test, and um, it was tricky. I mean, it taught me a lot because I had, before that and since, I actually had not needed to put a a fake beard on top of an existing beard. So, you know, the beard itself has so much, so many layers to it and texture and, you know, thickness. So the actual beard that you put on it has to be less so that it doesn't look like it just goes out. So we just had to do all these tests and we did it. And one of the opening scenes, there's a shot of him. Hopefully nobody can see that it's a fake beard, but there was a close-up shot of him with a fake beard on top of his beard. That was one of my uh, crazy weeks of that show or of the Marvel. So high stress. 
to get that to to do that. But I learned so much. So looking back, it was okay, you know. You're almost like, uh, yeah, I need him to grow out a full beard again, and then we could start shooting again. <laughs> I know that's that's what I'm saying. You never know. You never know what you're going to um, encounter. You just have to be prepared. And I wasn't prepared, but I told them my needs, and they were able to give it to me because we had enough time. Thinking of, of facial hair, okay, I'm always curious with how this works. How do you manage with either having a character suddenly bald or suddenly with long hair, with the wig process, with all the kind of crazy styles and hairdos that these actors can have? Because I see somebody on the red carpet with long hair and then in a production with like the bald cap on. And I don't know how the heck you guys managed that when all these actors have their specific look they like on the red carpet. Yeah, it's all in the prep. I mean, obviously, whatever the actors is comfortable with or whatever the actor needs is what we're going to do. And if the actor is shooting two things at the same time and that person has to keep that goatee, but we want a beard or we want a clean shaven, so we can't have a clean shaven because that actor has to keep the beard. But if, if, if we, we kind of talk about it in advance and I will communicate with the producer, executive producers that this specific actor needs to keep his facial hair. And I know you guys wanted it clean shaven because of X, Y, and Z. So let's have a dialogue and see what we can get to. So that means I have to show options of specific facial hair. We'll have to do a test. Or if we're talking about hair, um, that's more the hair side, less makeup. But we are the ones who do the bald caps. So yes, we'll do the bald cap and then we'll apply the wig if that actor needs to you know, keep their, maintain their specific look. So like in everything, and especially working in TV and film, you need to be transparent with information. Whenever they cast somebody, I right away said, can you send me a selfie? Because I know that they're going to want a beard. And if that person is clean shaven and I have two weeks, I have to get a beard or I'm like, grow your hair. Starting now, do not touch your facial hair. So when you come to me in two weeks, I'll know what I'm working with, but have something else in, you know, standing by in case I do need to put a beard on. So there's a lot of prep. And I, the moment I always ask, please let me know. I communicate with the stunt people or the casting directors. Please let me know when you cast this character, because we need to match the stunt because they were talking to me in advance that they want a beard. I need to know if I need to get a beard, all these things, these things that you just don't think of. (laughs) <laughs> that I need to deal with. But. So we don't have the, the mishap of uh, Henry Cavill with a mustache and the uh, Justice League movie? <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned CGI with I Am Legend, but I imagine with your prosthetic work and all the different special effects that you guys kind of have a decent amount of overlap between your special effects and the CGI department. How does that process work communicating with them on the character's look? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Once I know what specific look the um, Marvel or the show wants to achieve, I communicate with CGI to figure out whether it's easier for me to do something or for them to do something. Or obviously, um, budget-wise, it depends on the show, too. Sometimes prosthetics are more expensive than 
doing something CGI. I think it's usually the opposite though. But if there's something that I know that I can achieve, but it needs a little bit tweaking with CGI, there's usually a CGI rep on set or I get their email and I communicate with them telling them, or sometimes they tell me, when you do this, I know that this is going to leave a border, but don't worry about it. We're going to fix it. Or for instance, like putting a beard on top of a beard, there's always the lace that you have to hide with additional hair. So if, you know, if I see a piece of lace that something went wrong or, so, you know, it wasn't able to cover, which I don't think happened, but just an example, I would communicate with CGI to let them know this and this is going on letting you know that you may need to fix this and I'm sure they can see things on their own and they can tweak it but working with CGI is great that we can just communicate and figure things out together rather than not having any communication that just started happening to me in Marvel when I um, knew that CGI is a department that I need to be in constant contact with I think personally, like the perfect blend of a movie is when you have good prosthetics mixed with some CGI because you get some, like Lord of the Rings, for example, is a great example. But other movies where it's just solely CGI, you can tell then it's it doesn't it doesn't end out what really well. Yeah, it's like a seamless transition. I think it also looks better when it's real, like you said, rather than you know just the CGI zombies on Iron Legend. <laughs> <laughs> So for people who are interested in getting into the makeup industry, um, what is, what's some good advice that you can give them going forward? Well, I definitely think they should go for it and um, just come with the, come with no expectations and know that it is hard work, but it's really, really rewarding. I like I said in the beginning, I never thought that this would be a career that I would be attracted to or make a living with and make a good living and create stories and uh, become more well-known. This is something that I never expected. So don't come with any expectations and just, if you love makeup, there's a career in that. Just go do it. I started from scratch. I got to the unit a few years later. Um, and another thing I think is really important is that you should always educate yourself. I, to this day, take classes online, take, you know, hands-on classes, because you can always learn something new from somebody who's even younger than you sometimes. I've been working for almost 20 years, and somebody who maybe just got to you four years ago may have a better, easier technique or just a different technique. So always learn um, always be respectful to people that are around you or people that are hiring you, obviously. And I do think that definitely get, um, just get a kit together. You don't have to go out and spend thousands and thousands of dollars. That will come with time, but know the basic color wheel. That's something that becomes really, really helpful when you have to match tones. And um, be prepared to work long hours, sometimes night and days, if you're working in TV and film. And also you can try for a bit. And if it doesn't work out for you, you can still do makeup, but you can do makeup for red carpets. You can do makeup for um, commercials. You can do makeup for corporate. There's many other paths that you can go. So don't get discouraged. Things do take time. And every job is a stepping stone to the next one. 
You don't know who you're going to meet. Um, so be on your best behavior all the time. Be professional. Thank you. That's, that's some uh, great advice, even for people, you know, that are just trying to break into the film industry in general. Um, so we'd like to round out the interview with uh, our last question. You know, there's everyone's got experience and hopefully someone can listen to it and not fall into the same pitfall. So we want to know what has been your greatest professional failure and how have you learned from that? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think I will talk more about rejection than failure, if you don't mind. One of the rejections that I got end up, ended up turning the best thing that could have happened to me. And if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be sitting here in LA. In 2010, I, I, it was back when there were pilot seasons. Um, I was up for a couple jobs that I didn't get. It, it was two pilots that I really wanted and I didn't get. And when I didn't get the second one, I was pretty heartbroken and I took it hard. And then I stopped myself a few hours after and I said, you know what? something better is coming. It just has to happen. I just really knew it that I got out of my, you know, being down. I said, okay, something's happening. Now it didn't take five minutes. It took hours, literally 24 hours later. I thought all pilots were, you know, were, um, everybody hired the whole makeup team and I heard of nothing out there, but then 24 hours later, I got a call for a pilot called prime suspect with the actress, Maria Bello. And they hired me and I did her makeup and day two, she suddenly tells me, listen, I really like you. I think we get along. You're a great makeup artist. This show, if it gets picked up, is going to shoot in LA. Would you move to LA if this gets, if this gets picked up? And I said, absolutely. Not even knowing I'm not in the union out here. Could this even be picked up? Would this happen? I don't know. I just said, yes. Cut to gets, gets picked up. Maria calls me. She said, I want you to come to LA. I was working on Nurse Jackie at the time doing E.D. Falco. And um, I didn't know what to do. I said, listen, I'm not in the union. So they said, we'll, we'll make it work. And with a lot of work, they made it work. And I came to LA. That was my first job in LA. And um, I got into the union and I started making friends there. And I was back and forth for years. So that's something that I think that is really important for everybody, whether you're a new makeup artist or a person, a human being, that if you get rejection, don't call it a failure. Just call it a moment in time and let your emotions, you can feel your emotions, let them go, and then just move forward knowing that something's better going to come out of the situation. And literally 24 hours, I got that call and my whole life changed. Yeah, I like that because... I mean, everyone's going to, even especially in your kind of industry, when you get into media, get those pitfalls of rejection. It's kind of an inevitability, but it's nice just looking at it from the view of, okay, what else am I going to get because of this? So thank yeah, you so much for sharing that. Like what opportunities are coming? Also, as freelancers, you know, we're sometimes we're living, at least in the beginning, we're living paycheck to paycheck. So you know, find that courage to just continue knowing that something else is coming and don't look at the present of, oh my God, I'm not working now and I don't have anything coming. And, you know, 
obviously you can get other sources of income as well till you start working full time, but don't get, get discouraged. Know that if you're passionate and that's what you want to do, you will do it. You will get there. Absolutely. Well, we'd love to thank you again, Sari, for coming on the show. It was awesome hearing about this side of media. And for our listeners, where could they find out a little bit more about you? Um, they can check my Instagram, S-A-R-K-L Makeup. And I have a website, SariKlein.com. I actually have, if you scroll a little bit down my feed, there's a lot of pictures of um, all the Marvel characters that I've done. It's not something recent just because it didn't come out now. So you'll have to maybe scroll down. But since we're doing this podcast and it's going to be Halloween, so maybe I should just repost some of these pictures because to give people ideas or, you know, a lot of cosplayers are looking for um, breakdowns or visuals. Oh, totally. Yeah. Cosplaying. It's huge. <laughs> yeah. I've been to those comic cons. Definitely. Oh yeah. It's so much fun to see. And like usual, guys, you can get in touch with us at Podwars Podcast on Twitter or through Gmail, askpodwarspodcast at gmail.com. And everyone, have a great week. <laughs>